Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. This week's film is AI colon artificial intelligence, written by Stanley Kubrick and his No production. colon, actually. No colon? Yeah, one of the weirdest uh, titles of all time. A dot I dot artificial intelligence. Hmm. Similar to ET Extraterrestrial, I believe. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, well, you know, it's directed by Steven Spielberg, but it is produced by and uh, screenwritten by Stanley Kubrick's production company before his death. Uh, but Spielberg's the only credited screenwriter. It's a weird, we'll get it's into it. It's a bizarre beast of a film, and so we'll talk more about that. But I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton. And uh, we're here to talk to you about this. Now, to warn you in case you're tuning in for the very first time to this show, uh, first of all, hi. Thanks hi. For, thanks uh, for coming by. Halloween's over. It's a little less spooky now, uh, except for this creepy robot child yeah and he is a creepy robot yeah we're, we're out of the marathon welcome to uh your first episode theoretically and so uh we can definitely see uh the illegitimate son of edward norton uh doing what he can only do because man there's an edward norton vibe to Haley joe osmond in a way that really creeps me out interesting i keep thinking about as i watch the movie but anyway is it because he took creative control of the movie and uh, started making <laughs> demands something like that and added um, a love plot with uh with uh, Liv Tyler and there's nothing better to me than the idea of like 11 year old Haley Joel Osment just hijacking Steven Spielberg's town. movie. <laughs> so, so these are fake spoilers, but we need to talk about real spoilers. Yes, important. We will spoil this movie, but yeah, it's we, not about what happens. But we will wait a little bit for you in case you haven't seen the film. So we'll have a synopsis. Well, it depends on Arthur's synopsis. It does depend. Uh, maybe a little bit more spoiler than usual uh, with the synopsis this week, and then we're going to have our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are spoiler light. We're going to expand the syllabus, which will be generally more spoiler full, and then we'll be the spoiler fullest once we get down to business and bring you that analysis. So you've been warned. The long and the short of it is we can't talk about what this movie's about without talking what happens in it. And if you haven't seen AI, if we do our job right, it won't matter that you know what happens. You'll be intrigued enough by what it's about that you want to watch it anyway. When Haley Joe Osmond gets drunk on absinthe and figures out the meaning of life. But well, now they're okay. Yeah. Valid reading. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. It's not invalid. <laughs> Let's hear that synopsis, please, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Stanley Kubrick acquired the rights to Brian Aldiss' 1969 short story Super Toys last all summer long in the 70s. He spent 20 years developing the work, bringing in different writers along the way, including Brian Aldiss. But Kubrick didn't have enough faith in special effects to pull off his vision. And in the 90s, he reached out to his friend Steven Spielberg to bring it to life. But projects got in the way for both men. Following Kubrick's death in 99, Spielberg decided to take AI on as a project. The film follows the journey of a mecha child, an android that looks eerily human, named David. He is brought home to Monica and Henry, whose son is in a state of suspended animation due to a traumatic experience. David's naivety and misunderstanding of basic human functions creates a lot of tension within the family. When the son makes a miraculous turn and comes home, the anxiety and tension continues to rise. Following a near-fatal incident, Monica and Henry decide to take David back to the factory for destruction. On the way, Monica stops and releases David into the forest and tells him to run away. David recalls the story of Pinocchio and the puppet's journey to become a real boy. This sets David out on an adventure to find the Blue Fairy and become a real boy. Along the way, he befriends Gigolo Joe, escapes yeah, a flesh fair, meets his maker, and uncovers deeper truths about himself. Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial Intelligence, ultimately brought in $239 million worldwide received a mostly positive critical response, and scored two Academy Award nominations. 
Now, that's interesting uh, that Arthur mentions that positive critical response, because I remember for about 15 years after this movie came out that all anybody, uh, the, the buzz on the street among uh, movie nerds was that this movie was, was garbage. And I think those people are wrong, uh, but we'll get into that. I just think it is interesting that uh, it, it, it was a film that perplexed people at the time. It, so that's kind of surprising to me that critics still did kind of give it an, an earnest shot. Well, mostly positive is but like a, still yeah, kinda, you it know, did have a mixed reception though, yeah, right? It was very mixed. Yeah. Okay, yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that the, the critical consensus on this movie has been kind of weird for decades now, and I think it's only been within the last five years that I've really heard people saying, you need to watch this movie. Now, this is my first watch. Is Same, it? yeah. Same. Okay, so it's all of us. Okay, yeah. we're, we're all virgins in this territory. Very good, very good. So, hey, Dalton, yeah. tell us what you think. I mean, obviously you're disagreeing with the mixed review, so... <sighs> well, I've I got to give them credit. Right, because if I see this movie in 2001, let's go ahead and assume I'm almost 30 in 2001. I, if I'm 11 in 2001 like I actually was, I don't know what I would have thought of this damn movie. You'd have uh, wanted one of those teddy bears. I, go, I want one of those teddy bears right now. Yeah. That guy rocks. Uh, we'll talk about Teddy later. He kicks ass. He's one of my favorite characters. Uh, this movie confounded me. It, it really did. I, I haven't been this perplexed by something we watched since probably The Loveless. Uh, but because of how much I have grown to like The Loveless since we actually talked about it on the episode, I was like, all right, I, I got to do some digging. I got to wrestle with this movie. And that's pretty much all I did for the entire day after I watched it, because I I was kind of annoyed with David as a character. Uh, I, I was confounded by the fact that Gigolo Joe struck me as more human than David, despite the internal logic of this film being that David is the only uh, mecha with like real AI with like true sentience. Uh, and it took me a long time to kind of unlock some of the key pieces of this film. I think a big one is that this is a fantasy kind of in sci-fi trappings. This really is more concerned with theoretics than uh, literals. Uh, although it is in interested in this distinction between true versus simulated AI, which I'm not going to pretend to understand. I that shit cooks my brain a little bit. Uh, but I think the film lets its AI be messy, right? It lets characters like Gigolo Joe and a few other uh, characters really play up their humanity a little bit in just ways that are different than David's. Uh, and and the, the film hints, and uh, well, we won't get too spoilery right up top, uh, but where the film ends up going in its final stretches does kind of reveal that uh, there is a sentience brewing among the other AI. But outside of it being a fantasy, it really is a, a film about uh, the toxicity of love in some ways, which is really interesting. If you build your whole identity on love, you, the paradox of that becomes you're fundamentally unlovable because you're not an interesting person and you're not a fully well-rounded person. That is what happens to David. He is unfortunately stuck uh, being this helpless child uh, who is too afraid of everything around him to really engage with it. And I, I think that is a big hurdle to get over for AI because you have to spend a lot of time with Haley Joe Osment and his performance is fantastic but that character is really obnoxious and it's frustrating to watch David consistently fall on his ass really uh, and just kind of stumble along through this movie um, and, and that kind of aspect of it uh, can be potentially a little off-putting too sure David has a journey that he undertakes but he really does kind of stumble through it his decisions are uh, push the plot along a little bit at best, but it's not really that kind of movie. It really is moving you along to, if not visual set pieces that we know Spielberg for, although we get some pretty good visual flourishes. Uh, these these robots look amazing. Uh, it really is kind of pushing you through philosophical thought pieces, which is is interesting. Uh, 
Uh, it is a film where you feel that that friendship between Kubrick and Spielberg. I think is it's really interesting. Uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time arguing about what sections of this film to attribute to who, uh, and the consensus is really it's Spielberg's movie. It's just it's both of their movies. Like they worked on it together, and then Spielberg took it home and gave himself credit on everything. And Kubrick's family didn't seem to have any issue with that. Uh, so, I, but I think if you look at their interests as filmmakers, you kind of see them the way they fit together to make this weird buck wild movie that uh, again took me a long time to wrestle with uh and the thing that really did kind of bring me around to it was uh trying to have empathy for this character that is fundamentally unlovable because he is so sad in his seeking for love uh and i think that really is one of the key things about this film and i I hope will uh give us some good uh, analysis to jump into later on very good very good well hey arthur what do you think about uh ai artificial intelligence um, I, I'm a, I'm with Dalton a lot. I mean, uh, I watched this movie and I wasn't sure what to take from it. And I, I was kind of texting you all as we were, as I was watching it and kind of being snarky about it. And I said that, uh, you know, uh, the intro to Gigolo Joe is the m- most interesting thing to happen within that first hour. Um, but the following day it was that first hour and, and the finale that I really wrestled with the most. I like your floor. Yeah, yeah, that that opening uh, mm-hmm. is weird. I mean, it's, I couldn't stop thinking about it either. I mean, that whole you know that first forty minutes or so when he's with the family, I think is the most fascinating element of this of this movie. And um, you know, I think it does hold you at an arm's length before it kind of embraces you and brings you in onto this journey with David. And it's a very interesting structure uh, to go through. It's a very interesting approach to that to kind of have this very cold uh, opening and to have this kind of warmer middle i i think and to kind of have these feign relationships between characters especially between david and and joe and 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 later david and um what's the professor hoppy or whatever they yeah hoppy uh william, william Hurt. hurt's character yeah, yeah. hobby i think is hobby his name. hobby yeah um the geppetto of the film correct yeah and so you know i i think that's all kind of very interesting to look at i i do think that middle portion is a bit of a slog I, I was yeah, losing the flesh interest. Fair doesn't work as well as it should. Parts of it do. Uh, Brendan Gleeson, you know, shows up. It's really cool. But yeah, some of it's just like, come on, mm-hmm. where? Let's get there. Uh, you know, there are things. The the, the teddy bear is is really cool. Uh, um, the voice acting. Uh, we, where I was is watching David? when they get to the Einstein thing and they're asking a question. It's like, man, that sounds like Robin Williams. Yeah, sounds. it was baby. And yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, it is. It yeah. is Robin Williams. Yeah. And then we got Meryl, Meryl Streep, Streep and then we've got the Ben Kingsley and yeah. doing all these kind of. I I never heard their names in connection with this film, and so to have these kind yeah, of Steve voice called cameos, in the favors, <laughs> yeah, and I've I've heard that actually Kubrick directed Williams on his portion of that. Whoa, he worked with Williams for that voiceover that for Einstein. That's wild, you know. So it, it's yeah, weird to think about Kubrick and Robin Williams pairing up. Um, to be a fly that's a, on that's the wall. a flubber. I'd like to see. <laughs> um, Only it's a very different science fiction <laughs> film right there. Oh my god. Yeah, it's just Stanley Kubrick. It's just two hours of Robin Williams bouncing around a room. Um, Give it to me. Doing pumping in my eyeballs. Um, Sounds insane. I want it. But I I think it's just a fact. I mean, critically, purely critically, you look at the films. You know, fields of study you could take. You know, you do a tourism. You do death the author. You do any kind of critical analysis with this movie and have relevant readings and topics and papers and you know things to go from. It's just a wealth of of source and information uh, and so for me it's 
almost like an artifact. Like this isn't a movie I I would probably revisit for joy, but it's just purely fascinating to me to see something like this come together uh in the way that it does. Um I was really moved in that last, you know, thirty minutes or so. I, I think it's very uh emotionally devastating. I, I was I, distressed. I, I could not figure out why. Uh, and so I appreciate that about it, that it can do that. And maybe not so much in the kind of saccharine way we're used to with Spielberg. And I think that's what's interesting about it. And I read a lot of debate about the ending and whether it was saccharine or whether it was tragic. And it's a little saccharine. I, I think don't. it's pretty damn bleak. I, I And I, that's what bothered me. It, we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll, we'll There's get a there. lot to get into with um, that. So well, it, it, it's a saccharine bleakness. We'll, as well. we'll get there. But yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just think it's... Uh, I will say my biggest thing is that I think it's a little long. Yeah. You know, I think that middle portion uh, where we're getting all the set pieces is a little much. Um, and the more interesting things are the kind of quieter, colder David elements where we're really exploring that element of what it is to be human, what it is to exist, uh, you know, as a robot or as a person. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by all of that. And so, I'm I'm out there. I kind of like the Loveless. It's not. I I don't like it. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I'm just purely fascinated with it. And, and I you know I read several articles after I watched it. And I read several reviews and really just kind of delving into it. And I I think that speaks more to it than than anything else. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I think I'm a little cooler, but not a lot cooler. I think you. I would be a lot cooler if I hadn't, like Arthur, done some homework on it. So, I, I, I get it, man. I, I want to hear your thoughts, though. So, I feel as though the first 40 minutes do feel like a Stanley Kubrick film. And I think they feel like a conversation he's having with other filmmakers. And I'll talk more about this when we expand the syllabus and maybe when we get to analysis, we'll see what happens uh, with that. And I do feel like the last part works. But I do feel like there's a weird way in which the the film makes a bizarre tonal shift. I think Gigolo Joe is an interesting character that actually makes sense in the film unless you play it the way you played it. And Teddy as a character makes sense unless you have the Teddy character in that middle section of the film, which feels very much like a Steven Spielberg adventure film. I'm thinking about, well, costume design for the Hounds. I'm thinking about Brendan Gleeson's arrival. And it's a different movie. That's a Steven Spielberg. It's it's Steven Spielberg making Hook. I think it, in a I, sci-fi world. I I agree with you, but I think there's some tonal stuff there that's different. Well, I mean, I think than that, what, what you would normally get out of. That. I think that's from narrative, though. I think that's from the screenplay itself. But as as far as like a visual palette, and, okay, uh, and, a, and a visual oh, tone yeah. and yeah. Sure, the thematic sure, yeah. sort yeah. of attacking of the film, it does feel like. Two different filmmakers stitched together. It's not as though you're, I'm watching this movie and it's like Alfred Hitchcock and David Eggers had a baby, which is a great idea for a movie um, if you wanted to make that kind of film. Um, where it's, uh, a, a, again, a sort of suspense thriller, but it's also in that throwback set piece, uh, period piece kind of language that you might get from a from an Eggers film. Um, that That's a different... Did I say David? You said David. I knew I you meant, meant Robert. I meant Robert Eggers. Yeah, yeah I, would, I was going to get around to it eventually. Oh, Bobby Eggs. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a different thing uh, than yeah, okay. that kind of pitch because it does feel like it is a um, sort of a, ra a framing narrative by Kubrick and shot in a very Kubrickian kind of way and then very much a Spielberg adventure movie 
And I think they it fit throws, together neater than that. I really do. Not for me. I that's, mean, really fair. for me, it really was. It was rough. It was. It was a rough transition. It was a little too silly, mm. and a little too uh, just again, kind of. Yay! It's a fun ride. I don't think the flesh fair works very well. I no, agree. No, yeah. and I, I I see why that that's it's a that's a long chunk of movie, and that that's kind of the anchor. Well, of Well, the sequence. flesh fair, and then the move to the sort the of Rouge City or whatever city, it's wait, called, Rouge City. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, all that stuff. Even the Albert Einstein character, the way he's played, does feel very Disney. And those kind of things. Also, I just get slightly miffed at uh, Steven Spielberg's sort of self-aggrandizement. The use of the moon itself as a, as a uh, motif is fine, but the fact that Haley Joe Osmond's bed is under the DreamWorks logo, basically, is very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, so well, look, he only got to make the movie because he started his own film studio. I mean, I, I, I get, get it. it. I get it. But, but I, yeah, no. I agree. It's a little. It's a little much. Yeah. So I, I was I was vaguely miffed at that. But he, otherwise, here's my defense for that, though. If, if you'll permit me, I will. Allow I you. think the moment where David sees the moon and it's that look of Spielberg wonder, but it is tinged with absolute existential horror. The moon is not a cool thing in this Spielberg movie. It is still wondrous to mm-hmm. behold, but in this movie it is big and unknowable and horrifying. And that's the thing that I liked about it, because you guys know I was mad at Hook for its its real foo-foo uh, loving treatment of childhood. And I think this movie is got it's, a lot to say about how childhood's scary as it's hell. It's definitely less sentimental, but I think that sentimentality does work its way to the film's um, harm. I, I really am do. excited for us to get to analysis. So, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I really, I like I said, I like it, Yeah, but it's kind of like, meh, meh, okay. all right. You know, it's like, I would like to have seen Stanley Kubrick's movie, is what I would like to have seen, is the way I felt about it after I got done with it. But I was like, well, this movie is fine, I'm glad I watched it, but it, it's not... I did not emotionally react in a positive way uh, to the film, and there were bits, enough bits of it where I was like, mm, nah. So that's where I stand uh, in terms of review of AI um, starring Haley Joe Osmond. So moving on, let's go ahead and expand the syllabus. You're teaching a class now, and uh, you're going to wrestle with some question, and I believe this film would raise several possible questions and or research problems and would be available uh, as a text for several different kinds of course, even beyond just film studies. So what course are you teaching, and uh, how would you expand the syllabus with additional readings and or viewings? I go to you first, Dalton. Well, uh, as I was talking about earlier, I, I, I had a hard time unlocking this film, and I think one of the other scenes that really was a key for me was uh, that opening where William Hurt does his whole monologue, blah, 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 but then he's he's got this colleague who's just credited as female colleague, played by April Gl- Grace, uh, who kind of hits him with this rebuttal at the end of the monologue. Uh, I, I I like a, a big just like prologue scene like this where a tertiary character kind of lays a story out, and then you don't see that character for an hour and a half. I'm a big fan of that kind of scene uh, in, in general. Uh, but the 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 retort that April Grace has for him about okay, cool. What if you make a robot that loves? Good for you. You can't make people love a robot. You just can't. And that's that she kind of hits him with the big fundamental issue with this film is if you create a being's sole purpose to be seeking love, uh, you've given it a, something unattainable. You've given it the thing that makes us go to church and go to therapy and drink too much. You've given this robot an unfillable hole I'm not sure how I feel about the equivocation <laughs> you made there, but uh, I'll stay with you. It's it's the unfillable hole of uh, humanity, of mortality, of of pining and seeking. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's the thing that 
you know, drives us to do great things and do bad things. I, you know, that, that, that was, I was trying to give a width and breadth of the human experience, Dustin. I was not uh, making undue comparisons. <laughs> so that, that context of love and, and thinking about David as uh, having just a, a nearly sociopathic level of toxic love uh, was really what uh, got me going. So this class is going to be called uh, Love Me, Love Me, Say That You Love Me, or Forever, Ever, Ever, Ever. No, no, I have a better title. What's hit me? I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a punch up. Tainted love. Okay, I like a tainted love. Uh, I like but, the outcast reference. But these aren't all going to be tainted. Is the thing? I think uh, it's a okay. little bit more nuanced than that. So we You're are going to find use... pure love. Well, maybe we'll see. We'll we'll look at how some of our ideas about pure love are tainted. Uh, so we'll start with AI and kind of branch out from there with uh, her, uh, the Spike Jones film. Yes. Another uh, depiction of artificial intelligence and the love. And what happens when that AI does propagate faster and more complexly than we do? What happens when beings that we love transcend their need for us? That's It's uh, interesting questions being asked. Uh, right along those lines of love being eternal and forever, uh, let's go ahead and look at some ghosties, shall we? Uh, we'll look at Patrick Swayze in Ghost, the nice. one, uh, I would say, uh, Mount Rushmore film of uh, his career that we have not gotten to. We've done Point Break. We've done uh, Roadhouse. We've done Dirty Dancing. And we just got to do Ghost. The movie that changed pottery forever. Yeah, and sure, yes, you got Outsiders and Red Dawn, too, but those are the big four. Uh, but I, again, I think him and Demi Moore's connection in that film is, yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good love story, and it plays with some interesting ideas about carrying on. But again, I think it's nice to get a good sentimental one in here, and then we'll pivot to Ghost Story, uh, the film by oh god, what's that filmmaker's name? David oh, Lowry. The, Thank you, the, Arthur. The Casey Affleck. Yeah, 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 David Lowry, who we like so much. Uh, Casey Affleck. We, we like him much less. Him. Well, we put him in a ghost sheet, and I like him a lot more. He's uh, very good. I sheet. love a Ghost Story. I liked it when it came out. I rewatched it recently. I still love the shit out of this movie. Uh, and I think much like AI, it, uh, it, it's not afraid to get as weird as it wants to be when it needs to. Yes. Uh, but it never feels like it's doing it for its own sake. It's, it is, I would say, even more than AI, a film that is pretentious but seems afraid of coming across as so. And I always find that to be an interesting film. Uh, I, I like watching filmmakers uh, tell stories that seem self-conscious about being uh, too snooty. I like that. Uh, which is why you have scenes where people eat an entire pie uh, and make so everybody sad. laugh because they're uncomfortable. Yeah, it is so sad. It's the I, saddest. I did not laugh. Uh, it'll, it'll elicit a laughter. Uh, it did in the, the theater I saw it in, and I've heard that's not an uncommon experience, but uh, I think it's because it's so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we'll go ahead and move into that all-consuming love that makes you spin out of... Uh, uh, no, well, let's not say spin out of control, but we will say that consumes you and makes you maybe become somebody you don't recognize. We're going to look at Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, which I think shares. Nice. Uh, I couldn't stop thinking about uh, Moulin Rouge when they went to the the Red City or whatever they called it. Rouge Rouge City. I mean, yeah, yeah, I couldn't because it does look. Gee, I wonder why. I, it very much look. I mean, yeah, look, that's what they were going for. But um, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about Boz Lerman's dumb Romeo and Juliet because I think it does a great job of really teening the emotions, if that makes sense. I think, the, what's the Italian one that everybody likes? I've seen it. It's good. Romeo uh, and Juliet? Yeah. Zeffirelli's. Zeffirelli's, thank yeah. you. Zeffirelli's is good. The, the, despite having a real teen in that movie, they seem like grown-ups. And the grown-ups in Baz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Juliet all talk like Shakespearean teenagers in a way that I really like. Uh, and then finally, we're going to look at Sarah Pauly's Take This Waltz, uh, mm. which is really, really great. 
Uh, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but uh, Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen both give two of, I think, their best performances. Uh, and uh, the ways in which this film kind of examines what we're talking about, when does love get toxic, when does it, uh, the things that go unsaid pile up, uh, it's great. It's very, very good, and I, I think will close us out in an interesting way. And uh, maybe it'll let us get into some of the weird Oedipal stuff going on in AI uh, a little bit, just because Take This Waltz has the, the most sex of any of the films that we'll be talking about. Is so. there something Oedipal in AI? Ooh, buddy, is there? So that's the, that's the syllabus. It's been expanded. We're going to be watching a lot of stuff. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, how would you expand the syllabus teaching a class using AI, artificial intelligence? Well, I want to start with the uh, meta uh, option of Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. Ooh, um, a '67 uh, essay, uh, you know, r- removing the idea of the author and their intent, but putting it into the hands of the work itself as an existence, and how that uh, creates its own uh, new meaning in the world. Uh, and so, I think this movie uh, is prime uh, playground for that kind of criticism to look at. Uh, and so, I would also actually go with um, Robin Wood's introduction to Hitchcock's films revisited. Mm. Uh, in which he discusses at length um, his relationship with film criticism and the fluidness of that, uh, which I think is also very important. I I think still to this day, we get so wrapped up in the cult of personality and who's directing this movie and who's making it, who's writing it. And and so often those, those things go together, especially if you're into the a 24 circle or you're into the bloom house circle or, you know, things of that nature. And I, I think death of the author is important. I think film criticism is more than, more than that because it's so hard to come at something's purely subjective. I think there's so much that a, a critic brings to the table, their own biases, whether they realize it or not, their own life experiences. I mean, it's so easy to watch AI now uh, and in 10 years, rewatch it. And, you know, after life and, you know, experiences have a completely different reading, you know, as a parent, you'd probably have a different reading of this film. Than... I've, I've heard tell there's parents that can't watch this movie. Yeah. Dustin, could you watch it? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, he did. Dustin's not afraid of anything. Yeah. I will abandon all my children as easy. <laughs> I mean, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, was, I was very sad. Oh, I was sad. That was what I was supposed to say. <laughs> Sorry, human chip not clicking in. I'm sad. <laughs> I'm very sad at that moment. And I think it's important to be able to recognize that a director, a filmmaker, cinematographer, editor, editor can introduce any number of techniques into the film parlance and into the dictionary of filmmaking and i think it is important to be able to recognize when those first appeared or how they are used and how they impact the work but i think it's also important to realize that it is very easy to emulate another director uh and and capture their spirit yeah jj abrams made a whole career out of it yeah uh Uh, yeah uh, he's not the only one. Right, and I don't mean that. Yeah, I don't mean yeah. that as a slight. Brian right? De Palma with Hitchcock. Say, yeah. Bingo. I mean, and, you can make a damn good career out of that. And so I would start with those two essays, and then from there I would go into Brian De Palma, and I would actually nice. do uh, Mission Impossible. Oh, shit, yeah. Which okay. is very much uh, his Hitchcock blockbuster. I, I mean, if you wanted to see Hitchcock direct a modern-day action blockbuster, it's I think it's Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's very, very Hitchcockian. We throw these terms around. That's the other thing. We, Hitchcockian, Lynchian, Kubrickian. Yep. You know, when we, Spielbergian. Yeah, we, we throw those things around so often. Uh, and I think it's important to go back and realize what that actually does or entails. I mean, Well, and I think it's easy to fall into that, right? Especially we're talking about a film influenced by the, the friendship of these two guys. It's, it's easy to want to armchair analyze the, the people whose names are 
in the biggest font, right? Yeah. Uh, and to pair with the Palma, I would uh, pick another couple of students of Hitchcock. I'd pick Scorsese, and I'd actually go with Hugo. Um, mm. There are several visual flourishes in that film that recall uh, some of the visual flourishes of Hitchcock. Uh, and then I would also pick Park Chan-wook's Stoker, uh, which nice. narratively and yeah. thematically harkens back to uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Mostly, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, how he emulates him there. Uh, and then finally, it, 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 you want to see... Uh, Terrence Malick do a, a, a supernatural spoopy story? Yes, please. It's David Lowry's ghost story. Yeah. You know, he's very keen on Malick, and you can see it in his films and the way he shoots and the kind of ethereal spirit of his work. And I, I think it's important to be able to divorce a film from that. And I think there's that level of intertextuality, right? And you can see where these things pull from and how does that give meaning to what is here. But there's so many factors, especially performance and you know, we spoke on Patreon, I spoke about The Lighthouse and, and Robert Eggers, and, and it's important to note that, yeah, a lot of that is him, but there's also, I mean, a lot of Defoe's acting and, and his performance puts a lot of meaning into that film. It's and, a collaborative art form. Yeah, you have a different actor in that role, you have a drastically different movie, and I think it's important to note all that instead of getting wrapped up in the filmmaker, and, and I think those arguments about AI and, and you know, which part is Kubrick? Which part is Spielberg? Which part is Kubrick? Which part is, you know, it doesn't matter because we have this work that we can look at and we can bring in the, that influence, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, Spielberg's been real touchy. To, I think there's only been like once or twice that he's kind of come out and been like, yeah, I can, no, he wrote the ending, you guys. That's him. It's weirder than you think it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, he's one of those filmmakers that, much like Lynch, who we brought up already, I, I like filmmakers who try to lay back in the cut and do their best to say, no, nah, it's, it's yours. I, I already made it. I don't, I don't want to be uh, pulling a, I'm not going to make fun of anybody. You know, you uh, know the filmmakers who we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Arthur, I, I like that, though. I, That's I think fun. That syllabus is great because it is important to look at the, how filmmakers like latch onto each other's visual flourishes and kind of remix and uh, change them. Uh, what about you, Dustin? How are you going to approach this beast? I am going to, um, based on Arthur's uh, selection, I'm going to call this section the undeath of the author, colon, playing off of plants versus zombies, Tarkovsky versus Kubrick. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, seriously, because uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey from uh, 68, 69 uh, is a film that in some ways 1972's Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian filmmaker, are um, sort of in dialogue or in contrast with one another. And we've talked about this before on the show, so I won't belabor the point too much. But there's a way in which uh, Kubrick's coldness, uh, his calculus in making a science fiction film about the rise of artificial intelligence that we see in the HAL 9000 um, differs greatly from the very humanist sort of interest that we find in Andre Tarkovsky. There's a certain warmth. Uh, the movie ends with a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? When you, uh, I am dying for words right now. Hey, look, it's, it's all right. We all don't time. sleep enough. A tableau. Oh, a that's tableau. A, hey, you know what? That's a that's a word worth needing to think about for yeah, a second. That's a, a good word. I had to dig it out. A tableau recreation of uh, Rembrandt's uh, Parable of the Prodigal Son. And uh, so it's about forgiveness. Is this really what? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I'm never going to see the stinking movie. Oh, man, it's so good. I uh, might watch the Soderbergh one. I was going to say, we'll just someday. watch the Soderbergh movie. Oh, yeah. man, guys. <laughs> just, Y'all break my heart. It's hard to want to watch a three-hour movie. Okay, Ever. well that's that's totally Ever. fair. 
But both of these films also have source material. Um, they're based on literary works, and so there's a way in which there's a different kind of authorship that's at work, that's yeah. at loggerheads with uh, the writing and the filmmaking of the well, the writing of the screenplay, and then the actual shooting of the film, and the ways in which those different authorial voices begin to dialogue with one another is really kind of fascinating. And then I would fast forward to Stalker, another uh, work by Tarkovsky, which is based on an existing uh, literary work, and how that plays out in a different kind of way, less in conversation with Kubrick, and then I'm going to suggest that especially what we see in those opening scenes of AI, are very much in dialogue with Solaris. Uh, because it was sort of well-reported in the press that Solaris was anti-2001, the sort of negation thereof. And so he's doing something similar to what he's always done, it seems, screenplay-wise. And yet there's other things at work there. And then we begin to ask the question, when sentimentality enters into the mix, how much of that's Spielberg, how much of that's Kubrick? And it raises a bunch of questions in which you can say you cannot really pin down authorial intent and get back to Roland Barthes and this idea that the author is dead. But there is a way in which the author remains undead and yet still kind of shambles amongst us as we analyze those given texts. I think it's also a lot easier for us to now look back and look at, you know, the last 20 years of Steven Spielberg's filmography and go, oh, okay, AI is like the first uh, or like one of the first like three or four films of a dude about to enter a dark period in his career. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, he still does his Ready Player Ones, but you look at British Spies, The Post, these are somber adult dramas about serious people doing serious shit. Uh, right. They're real thinky i mean they're not they're, not, they're very middle brow thinky but they're very concerned with ideas right and uh you know even munich a couple years after ai right i mean i think uh it's interesting now to look back and go oh, okay no it's you can kind of see where some of the darkness might come from spielberg and might not just be from kubrick and you wonder well that's an older guy at the end of his life maybe he is wanting to be a little bit more optimistic and just muddies the waters even more. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, playing with, again, th this weird way in which you, 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 yes, you need to neglect this idea that the author has this authoritative voice. But at the same time, you need to remember the multiplicity of authorship yeah. that you're wrestling with. And so I think that would be a fun way to sort of examine and sort of an adaptation class meets uh, this weird kind of conversational, friendly sparring between uh, two great filmmakers. And you get to watch a bunch of good, fun science fiction films that are a little more... Um, art house than what you might ordinarily encounter. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts in expanding that their syllabus. Um, let's move into analysis. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's That's right. Business we're back, time. and we are getting down to business. Are robots people, guys? Yes. Okay. It's just a question of when. Moving on. I mean, look. I've seen the videos of them, like, battle-testing these things, like, pushing them over. Yeah, and then, They're like, going to be so mad. Giving them guns and, like, kicking them around. Like, no. This is this Idiots. is how it begins. Boston Dynamics, you this is how fucking it morons. Yeah. I, no. Yeah, no. I, I think my one of my... The, when J Gigolo Joe looks at David and says, I am, I was, is a big moment in this movie. And it says, okay... Even the mecha that the companies are saying don't have full AI probably are sentient. Like, you can only say it's a simulation of sentience before so long before the distinction becomes meaningless, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I, I think making David... Uh, the AI eventually evolve on their own. 
the Mecha evolve into uh, a civilization far more advanced than anything humanity ever created. Uh, and they're obsessed with us because we're their dumb forebearers. And they're ex- obsessed with David as this missing link, right? I think it's really interesting, though, that the time that humanity tried to create sentience without the robots doing it themselves, it created this bastardized version of childhood bliss that is is not real, right? It, right. Is, it is a Spielberg movie. It is E.T. It is ephemeral. And it's, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's it is predicated on well, it's dripping nostalgia hook more than it is exactly, yeah. and and it's this this film saying if that you put all that dripping nostalgia into one being, it's gonna suck for everyone around it, and also that being's life. That yeah, you put that being in an ever ever moving hell is what you do. Yeah, well, well and that gets us to I mean, we start with our robots people. Yes, that's the obvious answer, but then we got to go. Okay, well, r- really, all robot stories are just us talking about trying to talk to God, right? And the real shaking your fists, why did you create me? If we want to, I mean, if we had, hadn't already done our big Blade Runner episode, I probably would have talked about Alien Covenant more mm, and expanding mm-hmm. the syllabus because I think that really obviously gets at that shit. Uh, but it is this this kind of expression of why did you make me? Uh, because it's, it's you know, sure, you've got the William Hurt character, but Monica, uh, who's played by um, uh, an actress who has Frances O'Connor, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. She's uh, great. I, she's great. She's she's didn't have a huge career but is really great in all the stuff she she did. Uh but she's the one that kind of chooses to actually make David, right? And that's it's interesting that she has this affection for David. She can't destroy him. She didn't really love David. David's a robot. He's not real. He's a puppy. He's yeah. She loves him the way that you would love a puppy. Uh, and she feels bad that they're going to destroy him, so she doesn't. You know, she has affection for him clearly. So she but turns it's not him loose in the, in the woods, woods instead of taking her to, taking him to the vet to be put down. Exactly, and yeah. it's it's an interesting you know moral quandary that Monica finds herself in. I really think it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, I, I wonder sometimes about this whole like shaking the fist at God thing that happens in these in kind AI of, stories in these yeah. AI stories because there is this sort of assumption that. Um, what would be best for the creation is to be an exact duplicate of its creator. That is a very sort of anthropocentric, yeah. procentric assumption. Is that the best thing that we could do for robots is make them us? Why would we want to do that to a robot? Well, why would you? <laughs> why would you want to make something and make something just like you? Exactly. Yeah. You know. Now it's it like can, having a kid and trying to hijack your life. Now, I mean, it can bear your image. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be you. All over again, and there are going to be different traits and abilities and different uh, aptitudes and inclinations, and that might actually be a good thing. Well, because, right, it it is the assumption that William Hurt has that, oh, well, if we can just teach a robot the love a child has for its mother. every No, he almost spears her in the eye with a pair of scissors and almost drowns her kid because he's so scared. Mm -hmm. He's so scared because he just wants mommy's love. Footnotes, see our episode on The Bride of Frankenstein. There you go. Right on, yeah. I mean, it's an idea we've been grappling with for a couple hundred years now. There and it is. I think it's fascinating that that's where we're stuck. You know, it's a human ego. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. And I think that's what's so interesting about the film, right, is that it sees the ego in that. It sees, the, like, the shallowness of that idea. Of, like, you're just creating a love bot as a product. to and that That's the, the real... I mean, we're jumping a little bit ahead in, in terms of getting to the ideology of this. But, but David I, and Joe are both love bots. Yeah, ex- bingo. That's exactly it, right? And I think Gigolo Joe seems to have a more understand, like realistic understanding of humanity than David, despite 
One being capable of actual love, and Mm -hmm. one kind of just understanding love. Mm -hmm. That's why I like Gigolo Joe so much, right? Because he is this mirror to David. He understands everything. He doesn't feel any particular way about it, whereas David feels everything and just understands nothing, right? Right. They make for a fun, uh, you know, dichotomy. Kind of yin and yang. Exactly. They're fun to be paired uh, off each other. For Uh, sure, for sure. All right, uh, go ahead. No, no, I got nothing. Everybody looks like they have a thought <laughs> at the same time. It was very exciting. I, I look thoughtless. That's okay. I'm thoughtless. I'm heartless. I'm emotionless. I am a robot myself. We know. Um, That's why you don't age. Th- correct. Uh, which is <laughs> well, he is and he was. Let's go bigger. Then. And evermore I shall be. As, as we've no. talked about David's emptiness, let's go bigger, right? Because this isn't a film for children. Clearly. No. Clearly. No. I actually read a fun article about that, like, because it's very existential dready, but then like they they uh, they developed a a line of of teddies. Yes, they did to sell. They are apparently very hard to find because they yeah. only made a few of them. And there's like why? Yeah, and it came out. Who's in June. this for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the studio seemed to think this was for, for families, but this is very clearly a movie for adults. But if that's the case, then what what is David like? If we're trying to, and again, David can be a lot of things, right? He can represent a lot of things as a character. But if this is, we're accepting that this is a fairy tale about AI for adults, is David our the, the tiny child inside that we've tried to kill, so we're less afraid of the world? I mean, that, I think that's kind of an obvious answer. But I think there's a lot David could be. And I, I well, he's like, our Oedipal complex, yeah. right? I mean, there's that this yeah. sort of um, jealousy between the kinship between parents and wanting to find your way into that love triangle. Um, that's a thing. Some kind of what id super ego mm-hmm. element there as well. Yeah, you know just. He has the knowledge and information. He just doesn't know really what to do with it or what about that makes him human. Well, superego is sort of limited in his programming, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, to go to, from Freud to Lacan, he's got a symbolic order, but it's um, deficient. Yeah. It doesn't explain very much. And so almost everything he deals with uh, in the world is a uh, traumatic encounter with the real. Yeah, he has that moment of realizing that not only uh, is he... N- not going to be a real boy like yeah you, you you became as real of a boy as you're ever going to be just now by coming to my office dumb dumb uh and so he gets to have pair that shocking revelation with the shocking revelation that there are lots and lots of him uh and he, he is not the only special boy who needs mommy special love mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny it's a bleak moment and Haley joe osmond sells it man you're i don't very very he, special just like very everybody else spooky moment too. He blew, it's oh it's horrifying it's the way it's directed it's yeah, he, yeah. He, i think he totally sells it too it's yeah. it's this movie asks so much of him yeah for a child performance like it's it's fucked up that he hasn't got to have an adult career and i i get it like he's he, he's played a lot of like kind of schlubby uh uh, like sad guys or, or kind of creep creepos, and it's so. just like, yeah, okay, he's a chubby guy with a beard as an adult. Like he's a good actor. Give him mm-hmm. some meat, damn it. Uh, yeah, I, I I like him. His adult roles, the few that he's he's gotten, I think they're kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I but any, anyway, he he sells that that horrifying encounter with the real so many times in this movie. Dustin, it just kind of blows me away every single time he does it. Right, and I, I think the other thing that is sort of big to ta- tap into is this sort of hero's fantastic fairy tale journey that it ends up turning into. So it become it starts out as a film uh, that I'm much more interested in, mm-hmm. which is this film of how can I love a thing that I don't understand to be real in the same way that I am? How how can my love and empathy go beyond my own species? 
at this point? That's, that's a great, fascinating set of questions. But then once the abandonment takes place, it does turn into this sort of fairy tale journey where he adventures and meets friends and, you know, his, his, his little Dorothy crew of Gigolo Joe and Teddy the Bear. Gigolo Gandalf. Gigolo mm-hmm. Gandalf. Teddy Bear the Cowardly Lion. I love that bear. Um, uh, I do love that bear. Um, he's not cowardly at all, um, just to be clear here. But they go on that adventure. They do see the wonderful Wizard of Oz who tells them where they need to go to the um, the Ocean City, not the Emerald City. It's got all those sort of parallels sure, sure. at work there. And he spends 2,000 years praying to this. Well, what, is Dave, what does Teddy say to him, right? We're in a cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the love has turned into a prison. Yes. It, it, literally. Like, this hero's journey that he went on, right, because he couldn't ever... Uh, you know, externalize his love for Monica to humanity writ large. It just it is all consuming to the point he finds himself in a cage for two thousand years until AI come save him. Right, which is wild. I love it. Yeah, I, love I, it. I, I like that. It's cuckoo. I... Well, and then what happens though? Right, not only does he spend his entire life in a cage, he gets to to meet like this the society that couldn't be more thrilled to meet him. And they, they what do you want? We'll give you anything, bud. And he's like, you know what I want, you idiots? And it's creepy as shit. You can bring her back to me now, right? It's the most sociopathic that, that David comes across. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't care. Like, they tell him, you are going to erase your mother from the space-time continuum. There might be an afterlife for these squishy mortals. And uh, it turns out by just existing, they exist forever and eternity. Are you going to delete your mom's hard file, her backup, just to hang out with her for a day? Yeah. I am, because I'm a creepy little weirdo. That's why I think the end of this movie is so bleak to us. And I see the yeah. sentimentality in it, sure, because he finally got what he wanted and finally got to dream his robot dreams that he was promised. I, it seems like he dies, though, too, right? Like, he he probably goes offline. Yeah, I I've, I've read, he shuts himself down. Yeah, or, I, I've I seen... Know. I, I know that there are, there are... I think John Williams confirmed something vary. along those lines. But, yeah, I mean... The I film itself is pretty ambiguous. It though. is, sure. That is, I mean, he's a character that never sleeps, even yeah. you know, at, at the peak when he could be loved. And that opening where he says, I don't sleep, I just... I can lay here quietly. Yeah. I, I think for him to, you know, voluntarily quote-unquote sleep, I, I, I think he's probably taken himself offline. After or, murdering his mother. <laughs> It's wild. Well, and I think again, I think that is where it feels a very Kubrick and very Spielberg. It's it's Spielberg's interest in childhood and and Kubrick's interest in like uh, the infinite as a terrifying notion, right? Well, uh, especially and, when it becomes about like possessing other people. And getting back into psychoanalysis, it is the uh, discrete object of desire that the the fun or the enjoyment, the jouissance, to use uh, Lacan's term is in desiring the thing, but if you actually get it, you're done. Well, because what he gets right. isn't really Monica, right? right? The only the only Monica that can ever really love him is a Monica that doesn't have her own life, her own yeah. family. Like, she's this a kind simulation. of... simulation. Exactly. She's a, a simulacrum of Monica. She's kind of a Monica. Yeah. She's, she's, she's leftover Monica. Or we Phoebe, re- maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only time I've ever laughed at a Fritz joke. That's, That's a good joke. That's great. That was a good bit. Yeah, it's... It's sad as shit to me, man. Like, and I think that was it was an ending that I could not wrap my head around for about two hours. Like, I really was kind of mad at the ending, uh, and I think maybe for some of the reasons you you repelled against it, Dustin, because it does kind of come across as saccharine. But I don't know; it, it rang hollow to me, and it was because I I think I finally, to my mind, my read of the film is that it is a deliberately hollow, saccharine ending. 
Well, I, I think the idea that her finally saying I love you is horse manure. Yeah, it's bullshit. Exactly. I don't know that the movie knows that. I think it does. I really I, do. I don't know that. it. I'm not convinced. One of the articles I was reading, and it goes back to the Teddy thing, right, is uh, there's a frame, and I can't remember, maybe when they're laying down, but Teddy's still in the frame, mm-hmm. uh, reiterating this idea that, you know, Teddy's being left behind again. Yeah. You know, I mean, all the things that we love get left behind, you know, by whatever choice. And, and it's just kind of this cycle, no matter the time or place or space uh, that we come back to. And I think that adds a level of bleakness to this ending that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what matters? Does it matter? Why does it matter? And, you know, I think it kind of puts that up in the air. Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Oh, I like that. That's very good. And it does, again, sort of frame it within this journey of discovery, and there's no end at the end of this particular rainbow, which I do like. I'm I'm a person who enjoys the bleakness and the darkness of those ideas and the sort of crumbling of those images. But it does seem to be sort of the problem of postmodern deconstruction in general is that, okay, fine, we've gone through this entire deconstructive process, but what are we supposed to do now? How – I mean because – Love is a thing that exists. Love is a thing that, you know, brings about existence, perhaps. And if that's the case, then we maybe we need to rethink it, retool it, and uh, you know, objectify it less. But it doesn't really do that work for us. Well, and, and uh, you know, if we, if we're gonna pivot and put a nice bow on this and kind of end back where we started, right? We, we were talking about the, the the fist shaking at God or or the possessive need to have the divine's love which you know if we want to david's a person monica's a god or whatever if we want to try to draw those analogies out but if that's all you're consumed with is like the favor of the divine or whatever that looks like to you you're just going to be a bad person you're going to be emotionally uninteresting uh stunted little weirdo like david who only cares about like okay david got to go to uh, uh whatever robo paradise he could have and all he wanted was murdering his mom right that's you're gonna be so obsessed with coveting and possessing favor from on high well then he abandons all of his community exactly then you can't take that love and spread it out to everybody again like david has opportunities to build relationships with other characters like he has a ready-made family and this guy who's like fascinated this guy at the flesh fair that wants to save him and and the daughter uh that like sees david and recognizes his specialness and I thought that was going to be a whole subplot that just never yeah. happened. Like, that's the thing. David has offered a ready-made family to join that that seems interested in, like, caring for him, and he does. Just can't be bothered. Well, I, I, Blinders. I, I think it goes back to the idea, though. I mean, once she uh, imprints on him, right, I mean, it's now part of his programming. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the other question that we're looking at is how do we outrun our natural programming as whatever we are there you know, go. as a species, whether we're human or robot or human bot I yeah don't know. I, I think that's another question to yeah whether with. we're on a turtle's back or plugged into a computer what's going on here <laughs> i mean does he have an i mean he's presented with choices but does he have a choice well that's what i was saying earlier right yeah. like he is just kind of pulled along by the, the, the events of the film he he as you said arthur he william hurt makes an argument that he has a choice oh you realized you're you had no option so you created a fantasy you could live in that's the most human thing you could have possibly done, which is a really damning statement. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> well, and I, I think there's a way in which uh, there's a there's sort of an ableist reading of, Absolutely. of this. In, in fact, you, you know, you're, you're a family and you get a child that doesn't quite 
work that doesn't right. fit with everybody. Right. Yeah. And, and and what what can you do in this situation is that it is an impossible thing to love that that sort of uh, objectifies the existence of this kind of child. And I do think there's a really kind of stark coldness to that as an idea that that yes indeed love uh for a child on the spectrum might not look like traditional love but the movie i think knows a little bit that it's always fraught with difficulty because martin's character sucks oh he's the worst yeah he's the worst he's terrible but because he's normal because he's a child because right. regular Cuban. kids are mean yeah. Yeah, David lacks guile that all other 12-year-olds have. But he can sort of play at love and gets sort of passes in ways that David does not. And uh, that really all you can do is sort of deal with and, you know, find a way to accept some sort of secondary kind of love, which I find to be pretty reprehensible uh, as, as a suggestion that, you know, all you can do then is like either continue living a life in which you sort of just pretend at a relationship and an affection with this broken child or – Find a way to warehouse or abandon or, you know, sort of pass off the responsibility of this child to some sort of institution or leave it to the forest in this case. And uh, that's pretty troubling to me. Well, I think it's supposed to be troubling in so much as that I think it's it comes back to David's inability to, like, to try to d- – the limits of his quote-unquote sentience, right, that he's been given – kind of prevents him from building a life outside of his identity to something else. It yeah. prevents him from forging his own identity. And I think that's that's why it's reprehensible because it's saying that kind of codependency is is it's trying to make a statement about how unhealthy that can be, especially if you do take it to the largest uh, logical conclusion, right? If we start talking about eternity and, and these sorts of ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just, I wonder about the movie that looks like uh, David living with his family for 50 years and they yeah. grow old and they die. I think it's called Bicentennial Man. Okay. Stars also Robin Williams. Uh, it's weird. Yeah, it is. It's weird as hell. Yeah. That's the first guys. movie I walked out of thinking, and I saw that as a kid. And that's the, I always think of that movie as the first movie I walked out of and went, what the fuck was that? I mean, for a kid's movie, I mean, that'll make you think. Uh, oh, buddy, it threw me for a loop. Oh, I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thesis of that movie. Yep. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. One out of every one people. Well, that's a good place to end it. Uh, that's right. Cheerful. That's what this movie's kind of about. Uh, <laughs> no matter how far you make it, you're going to die. You're going to die, and probably everybody else will, too. And uh, there's a not insignificant yeah. chance it will happen to all of us at once. Either you'll die or the person you're trying to love will die first. Yeah. 50-50 shot. Yep. All you we can hope. The other one. All we can hope for is that we're an interesting fossil to the uh, AI civilization that owns this mud ball after us. I hope they just destroy it. Oh boy. Uh, you, you know, I wouldn't mind if they backed our brains up to the to the cloud. Really? Yeah, it'd be all right. Do I you want to ethereally live in Twitter? Absolutely not. No, nope, never mind. Change the mind. Yep. If I got to choose between right. a digital heaven and no afterlife, I go lights out. I think. <laughs> I think I do. I think I choose lights out. Fair enough. I might. I may take the digital cloud for a spin for fifty years, and then yeah, I'm going to go ahead and unplug eventually. That is an interesting verdict to render. We must render yet another kind of verdict, though, upon this film, uh, Shell for Trash. What do you say, Dalton? Shell for Trash for AI artificial uh, intelligence. Uh, while I was watching the credits to this film, I had planned to trash it, but between doing my research for this episode and talking about it with you, gentlemen. I, I gotta say it's shelfable. I think it, it's interesting in in the the canon of Spielberg, who is you know one of the m- most uh, prominent and successful and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for here? Uh, prolific uh, American filmmakers of the last say those are commercial. Decades. Well, commercial, yeah. I mean, he's a big deal in American cinema. 
especially if you're talking about Hollywood and the studio system, a guy that sur- that was part of New Hollywood and survived all manner of uh, upheaval. It's a weird movie in his filmography, and it's it's an interesting addendum to Kubrick's filmography. Uh, it's a great a reminder that Haley Joel Osment was not a, a one-and-done kid actor. Um, for all those reasons, I think it's shelfable. I think there's a lot of meat on this film. All right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf or trash for AI, artificial intelligence? I'm going to shelf it. Uh, and I, I like Dalton. I didn't think I would, but after the you know next couple of days of thinking about it, I, I, and I don't know if I like it. I, I, Dustin, I think you're right. I, I, I think there are some drastic shifts in, in the film. And, you know, I don't know if, I don't think they work, but I'm just purely fascinated by this film and how it came together. And I, I think we've proven tonight that there's a, you know, plethora of, of ways to approach this film. And I think, it, you know, from a pedagogical uh, standpoint, or, you know, and, and stuff, it, it makes for an interesting study. So I, I, I think it's worthy of staying in the common parlance. I'm going to say trash. Uh, I think you should see it, but I don't think you need to own it. I don't think you need to buy this movie to get the Blu-ray now. Nah. Um, first of all, the transfer is janky. Uh, second of all, no, nah, just just no. Nah. I'm, 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 it's okay, but that's all I can say about it. It is, it is, it is very okay. I do think it's interesting, and I do think it's a great side story uh, to different conversations. But even like the way I constructed my syllabus, really AI functions as an auxiliary text. Uh, more than a primary text. That's fair. And I'm just I'm I'm less interested overall in what it's doing. And like Arthur said, and like I said earlier, I just find it tonally to be kind of a mess. That there's kind of a hook movie right in the middle of this really really interesting uh, Kubrickian Tarkovskian dialogue. And I would rather see more of that. So I'm out. I should clarify. I do think this movie's a mess, but I kind of love it for that reason. That's fair. I'm, I'm, I'm really falling movies. in love with messy movies lately. Hey, Mario Brothers is a mess, no, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. Uh, sometimes the mess is just too much. Yeah. Is what we're coming at. Well, that's that's one in the can. That's uh, good. What are we doing uh, next week, Arthur? Real quick. I, yeah. What two diametrically opposed directors would you like to see a Frankenstein from? <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Like I, I, I yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking like David Fincher works on a movie for ten years, mm-hmm. gets a draft ready, dies, and then Wes Anderson walks in and just, I mean picks it up and just makes this weird amalgamation of hmm. of these two guys. Okay. Okay. I want to see David Eggers working on the script. Robert, Dave, Robert Eggers. Robert. You did it. Who are you thinking? Are you thinking who? I don't know what I'm. Doing. I want to. I'm curious who you're thinking. thinking of David Eggers. There David it is. Ayer. Yeah, there's <laughs> Bobby Eggs. I want to see working on uh, the screenplay uh-huh. and adapting that. And then I want to see David Lynch pick it up. That's what I want. I think they're too too they're similar. Too similar. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm. I'm. Yeah. 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 They're very much of a piece. Well, okay. I, I get what Dustin's saying. They both are weirdos, but Eggers is a little bleaker. It's a different kind of weirdness. I think there's yeah. a transcendental versus surrealism, which are two yeah, different schools. Absolutely. Uh, I, I really... Look, this, it's unsurprising that I'm going to pick the Wachowskis, but I, their humanism is a weird fit. I revisited View for Vendetta recently, and the, they couldn't not put their, their stamp on Alan Moore's work, and it's a weird fit in a way that I like. So I, I like the idea that, you know, I'm sure they have plenty of undeveloped uh, trilogies just lying around. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, let's see uh, Taika Waititi pop, pick that up. Because he, he's kind of, uh, he's a little bit meaner than they are That's in wild. his films. I like that. Yeah. I, I, I see th- he's, he's sillier, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, he's much more uh, interested in comedy. But uh, there there is a, you know, it's it's not a, a lack of humanism in his work, but it is kind of a there's a cynicism in his work that uh, just doesn't really exist 
in their filmography. Uh, so I think that would be an interesting match because I think he's an overall like pretty uh, happy uh, filmmaker in terms of the movies he makes. Uh, I still haven't caught up with Hunt for the Wilder People, but it seems very it's great. Movie. It seems great. heartwarming, and I've very good. I haven't seen some of the earlier stuff, but between what we do in the shadows and uh, being very interested in Joe Rabbit, yeah, I think that's an interesting combo. Arthur, what about you? Did you have uh, any off the top of your head? Fincher and Anderson. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, that yeah. was a big one. That yeah, was a good that one. That was your example. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked. I think it That's worked. A, yeah, thank you fun. for pitching that. That was fun. No, I like I that. Thinking, thinking about it. Because, I mean, it was unique. I've got an idea for the next show. Well, do uh, you? Let's, let's do a movie. Oh, okay. oh I, Well, I've got one. Oh, do you? Actually, yeah. but could I take a minute to talk to you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Um, I've got this uh, no. this tract, if you if you guys I don't, don't mind. I what don't is, know that the patrons... What is this? Um, you guys can look at that. What is uh, just, oh, this is a real thing. It kind of just okay. outlines a, a few of the, the things, oh. a few of the pointers. Um, yeah. Arthur has so, handed us a pamphlet that says, "Light of the- Oh, my God. We so are going to be talking about the Lord. So, so next week, we're going to be talking about a very controversial R-rated religious movie. Yep. Um, but this one doesn't involve Passion Mel Gibson. <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, on the 20th anniversary uh, of its uh, The other released. Catholic movie. Uh, it is Kevin Smith's Dogma. Um, we, we're going to be diving into this. Uh, I'm so excited. Wild, this movie. wild and out, uh, uh, a film. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, Yowzers. His most financially successful movie, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and you can't find it to stream anywhere. Um, the Weinsteins actually own the rights and no one's getting that back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, until they die. So, uh, I, I think there's some interesting stuff there to talk about. Um, but this, I have the special edition uh, DVD here. Goes for ninety dollars on Amazon. Holy, holy shit. cow! Uh, so uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Kevin Smith's fourth feature film, Dogma. This is going to be interesting. Uh, I have much different Kevin Smith feelings than I did when we started this podcast eight years ago. Uh, I have strong Alanis set feelings. I, yeah, the, the the divine. You mean? Yeah, I'm very excited. Where are we to... all stand with Selma Hayek? Uh, we stand. With Stan Hayek. Yeah. I, I look, I love everybody in that movie. I even love Benny. <laughs> I love, ca- I love Boston cast. Benny. Boston <laughs> Benny's an underdog. Again, he's a he's a poor down as luck schlub. We're all looking. We've got the cover art here. I mean, we've got, we've got Chris Rock, Affleck, Damon. Uh, Rickman. Yeah, Selma Hayek, Jason Lee, Alanis Morissette. <sighs> uh, George Carlin makes an appearance. Oh, yeah, he does. It is stacked to the, the to the bone truly an incredible cast assembled Linda well, Fiorentino we got to mention her oh of course yeah we, who has been coming up a lot on this show lately uh mostly us bemoaning that there's not more Linda Fiorentino movies but uh I'm excited to talk about that if you're as excited as we are to talk about this you can let us know at good underscore trash on twitter you can email the show good trash genre cast at gmail.com you can see everything we're up to uh over at goodtrashmedia.com if you want to help keep the lights on over here, that's a good tra- or no, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's how it works. Uh, if you like what you heard, or even if you don't, I don't give a shit. Rate, review, subscribe. That's how <laughs> algorithms work or something. I don't know. Just don't leave us a one star. You don't have to, you don't have to review it. Just subscribe. You can review it. I don't care. Uh, have a good day. Be nice to each other. Uh, and enjoy podcasts. We'll talk to you next time. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. Bye. <laughs> I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.